0: Welcome to the Three Martini Lunch. Grab a stool next to Greg Corumbus of Radio America and Jim Garrity of National Review. Three Martinis coming up. Hey, really glad you're with us for the Wednesday edition of the Three Martini Lunch. We don't actually have any good martinis today, but we've got plenty to talk about. And in our final martini, it's the story that Jim Garrity has been preparing nearly 20 years uh, to talk about, given the subject material in that particular martini. But let's get to our... Bad martini number one, and that is what we're expecting to hear from the Department of Homeland Security eventually uh, this month about the December numbers at our southern border. We're getting tips from uh, Fox News reporters like Griff Jenkins and Bill Malusian that according to their sources at Customs and Border Patrol, more than 250,000 encounters with illegal migrants along the southern border were recorded in December a quarter of a million. And if that's correct, it's the first time that's ever happened since numbers have been kept. In addition, Bill Malusian is reporting that there are 65,000 gotaways, meaning that's on top of the people who were encountered. These are the people that didn't get encountered, but uh, Customs and Border Patrol know they got into the country. So uh, now we're looking at north of 300,000 in December alone. But uh, Jim, the border is secure, according to Mallorca's. Biden went down there. It seems like everything's fine. And so they're, I guess, just going to keep pretending that what they're doing is working when it's directly responsible for the problem.
1: As far as martinis go, this is pretty darn bad. But I think there's two wrinkles to this one that make it really significant. I'm among those who subscribe to the Customs and Border Protection's monthly updates to their southern border encounters. And I, too, have noticed that these updates seem to be arriving Later and later in the month when accounting for the previous month. Now, okay, maybe it takes you a couple of days to get the data together. Uh, maybe somebody's particularly late. Maybe somebody's out. You can think of a lot of reasons of why you know a, a one or two snafu or a one or two day delay might not that big a deal. But it does seem to be stretching into. Used to be about you know somewhere in the second week of the month you'd get it. Now it's it's pretty consistently the third week of the month. Here we are, January 18th, and it does not appear that the December numbers are out. And you can't help but get the feeling that because almost every month of the Biden presidency, these numbers have been really bad, that there is a desire to uh, delay the release of those numbers as much as possible. It's kind of interesting. You, know, you think about the unemployment numbers from the Bureau of Labor Statistics, the inflation index, all that stuff has a very set schedule for release. And Customs and Border Protection is like, eh, we'll get it to you when well, we can get it to you. And unsurprisingly, it gets a little bit later each time. Now, the thing is, is that this just kind of delays the bad news cycle. It doesn't really uh, prevent it. So you kind of wonder, you know, if, if this is some sort of news spin strategy, what the ultimate upshot is. The other aspect of this that is bothersome is that, you know, look, we've had more attention on the border in 2022 than we did in 2021. And we had more attention on the border in 2021 than we did previous years. Obviously, it dropped a great deal in 2020 because of the pandemic. That interest, that focus, that concern, that worry, that anger just kind of increases month by month to the point where Colorado Governor Jared Polis was sending out migrants to other states, places like Chicago and New York, voluntarily, he emphasizes, but his, you know, the way he, he described it is like, well, for most of these migrants, they didn't plan on coming to Colorado. Their ultimate destination was to get to places like Chicago and New York. And we're trying to help them get in touch with relatives and uh, friends and aid groups and things like that. Unsurprisingly, the mayors of Chicago and New York did not see it that way. And they saw it as the same thing of you're getting the migrants out of your neck of the woods and dumping them in ours. So when you've got Democratic mayors going to war, metaphorically, with Democratic governors, you'd think that'd be the sort of thing that would get the Democratic president to sit up and take notice and say, wow, we've got a real problem here. This is not right wing spin. This is not uh, some sort of you know xenophobic talking point. No, we really have too many migrants coming over the border. And yet each month, it seems like the reaction from the Biden team is worse. It, it becomes even more in denial. It becomes even more insistence that everything is working just hunky-dory um we'll see what these january number these december numbers look like probably by mid to late february we'll have to wait to see what the numbers are in january but my suspicion is is that you know we're gonna because people you know are more likely to move in winter than in summer we're gonna see the worst numbers ever and the biden administration is not going to course correct at all partially because of the midterms and partially because this is an administration that is not exactly nimble uh in the first place
0: yeah, and I don't think they want to change the policy. But, uh, you know, Greg Abbott's the bad guy. You got 300,000 plus people pouring across the southern border, not all of them in Texas, but a sizable percentage, I would guess, in Texas. Uh, and he's the bad guy for shipping a few hundred or maybe even a couple thousand uh, to different cities around the country who had declared themselves to be uh, sanctuary cities. I mean, think about filling the largest football stadium in the country, which I think is. Uh, University of Michigan, Big Ten champions. Three times, three times, over 100,000 people you can fit in there. Three times is how uh, how many people came across the border illegally in one month's time. Just unbelievable. So, Jim, uh, the Biden administration is getting more and more sluggish and spitting out the numbers from the previous month about illegal border encounters. But another thing that could be sluggish is your liver. Look, 100 million Americans have fatty liver, and that can greatly increase your likelihood for heart failure. Don't let that happen. Take care of your liver. It takes care of you with all its detoxifying functions. But now you can help your liver.
1: There's a solution, and it's called Liver Health Formula. It's an all-natural supplement which contains 12 clinically proven botanicals that can help recharge and protect your liver. It's manufactured right here in the United States and approved by American doctors.
0: You can try Liver Health Formula and receive five free gifts when you order today. First, you'll get a free bottle of nano-powered omega-3 to keep your heart healthy, and then you're also getting four free e-books to support every aspect of your health. Try Liver Health Formula by going to getliverhelp.com martini and claim your five free bonus gifts. One more time, getliverhelp.com martini. All right, Jim, on to our second bad martini here, and we head over to the White House briefing room for this one. Corinne Jean-Pierre, she's had a rough couple of weeks here uh, dealing with the Joe Biden classified document story. Uh, She assured all of us by James Rosen's account six different times that uh, the uh, classified document search was done. No more were coming. And then, of course, on Saturday, We found out about even more. And so yesterday, uh, plenty of questions for uh, KJP at the podium, but she didn't really want them. She kept, you know, deferring to the process, nothing more to say from here. And then she finally uh, went with this.
1: Guys, you guys can ask me this 100 times, 200 times if you wish. I'm going to keep saying the same thing. I hear your question. It's been asked. It's been answered. It's been noted. And we're just going to try to move on here uh, and we're going to move on.
0: Bill Belichick is more convincing when he talks about moving on because uh, the story generally will shift to the next game. But, uh, Jim, what do you make of uh, all sorts of uh, silence now at the podium after all these assurances that everything was on the up and up?
1: You know, if President Biden scheduled an event in Cincinnati and in the press briefing before that trip, Karine Jean-Pierre just answered every question with, we're on to Cincinnati. We're focused on Cincinnati. Our focus is on Cincinnati. I would I'd give her credit for that. At least that would be funny. At least that would be uh, a witty way of avoiding the question. So Karine Jean-Pierre has like three go-to moves when she gets asked about something that is an uncomfortable issue or headache for the Biden administration. The first is to say, well, I haven't been briefed on that or I haven't had a chance to discuss that with the president or Ron Klein or, or someone like that, which I suppose is a fine enough answer. But when the White House press corps is, ask, is asking a question, Generally, your job as White House press secretary is to answer it and thus, you you know, Okay, well, the next time you see the president or Ron Klain or the appropriate administration official, uh, Susan Rice or whoever it may be, that you'd actually have that question and say, look, you know, so and so from uh, this press agency has asked, has the president, you know, agreed to blah, blah, blah or whatever that question is. And, you notice you go to the next day's press conference and she doesn't bring she doesn't go back to update this very rarely once in a great while. So that's just ways to just you know say to ignore the say i haven't been briefed on it shrug and just wait for the the reporter to forget about the topic second one is to say well i'm going to refer these questions to somebody else who you know is not answering questions in the biden document story she's referred people to the white house counsel's office the white house counsel's office very rarely if ever holds press conferences the white house counsel's office very rarely if ever issues press releases the White House counsel's office very rarely has anybody sit down to do interviews. So they're not a place that gives out further information. The place in the White House you're supposed to get information is from the press secretary. And, of course, you, know, you end up in this sort of you know, game of ping pong where each office is referring you backwards and forwards. The other one saying, well, it's not my job to answer your question. Also, she's been referring people to the Department of Justice and she's been referring people to the special counsel's office, both of whom are you know remarkably tight lipped and are infamous for not putting out any information at all. So the way of like, well, I I can't answer your question, but that person over there can answer your question, knowing full well that person is not going to answer that question.
0: Yeah, no, it's an excellent point. So it's just kind of a wild goose chase. And the reporters know that. Do you think a lot of these White House correspondents have actually put in requests from – Merrick Garland or the White House Counsel's Office, or do you think they just try again the next day? Because I think they know uh, pretty much how the system works, or at least a lot of them do. Uh, I
1: suppose some of them might, you know, like, okay, fine, I will do so. But so that you can put in that line in your report, you know, the Department of Justice, you know, uh, did not respond to to requests for comment. But you're adding one sentence to your article that doesn't really change anything. And I (laughs) I say that as someone who's made that call quite a few times in my career, knowing you're not going to get a response. It, it you know, makes kind of adds to the, the sense that the government is not answering questions, but you still feel like you're kind of wasting time making a request that, you know, is not going to get answered. Again, this, the other thing is that you know, kind of the, the arrogance on display here. When does the country move on? Well, when the country feels like moving on, not when the, when G, Karine Jean-Pierre feels like it or when uh, Joe Biden feels like it. There's you know like we will you know, we'll, we'll stop asking the question when you answer them. And you don't just get to say no. We've decided not to answer that question. Now it's time for us to move on to other topics we're more comfortable talking about. But that's basically her play here,
0: Jim. A little bit of speculation. You've got some Democrats being pretty tough on on Joe Biden and their analysis of this. Some people say, well, they're being consistent. They were hard on on Trump. Uh, they were they're being hard on him. They, they see this as a national security issue. Others say, well you know, they thought the midterms were going to go a lot worse. They thought they were going to get somebody else besides Joe Biden running in 2024, and they're not too excited about that. So maybe they see this as an opportunity to still change horses, despite the fact that the midterms went better than expected for them. Uh, How do you look at it?
1: I'm skeptical of that theory um, because I think it it assumes a level of uh, planning (laughs) and foresight and strategic thinking that the Democrats as a whole have not really exhibited for quite some time. I mean, you know, the if you want to get the president to not run again because you think he's too old, the easiest way for a, uh, you know, Democrat to do it is to say, I really respect Joe Biden, but I think it's time for him to pass the torch to somebody else. Is it possible that Biden will hold a grudge against that? Yeah, but, you know, at his age is a good chance he'll forget about that grudge. <laughs> um, also, you're not saying anything that anybody doesn't know. I, you know, I suppose the uh, White House could try to, you know, or, or the Biden inner circle could try to, you know, inflict some vendetta against people who come out and say this. But this was a pretty common belief amongst Democrats for most of last year. No, I think this is I, I think if you're seeing more criticism from Democrats than usual, yeah, maybe some of this is second thoughts of wondering about how competitive Biden will be in the next cycle. Um, but I also feel like they kind of feel, you know, when everybody was uh, hitting around Donald Trump like a pinata for the documents in Mar-a-Lago last year, Nobody thought that there were any documents in Biden's house or Biden's office or anything like that. So I think I think there are some Democrats who feel stupid. I, I think they feel kind of, or, or more importantly, they can't believe Biden went up on 60 Minutes and said, "Ah, it's so irresponsible," when he himself had made the same mistakes. It, it you know they feel like they had the rug pulled out from under them. um You can find quotes in places like Politico of Democratic strategists like, "Yeah, you know what." The whole thing about documents in Mar-a-Lago, it's not going to go anywhere. And, and we'll see how the independent counsels and Department of Justice chooses to handle this. But I think in the public's mind, this has now turned into a lesson that, yeah, nobody's really all that careful with classified information when they should be. And so at that point, you know, there was a, you know, they thought they had a clean shot at Trump, but now they don't. And I think you're seeing a little bit of uh, uh, Biden's getting some ire from Democrats. He's getting some some criticism. And it's well-earned because he had gone out and, you know, Talked about something being absolutely terrible when he and his staff had done the same thing.
0: But, Jim, his garage was locked. I mean, doesn't, yes. doesn't that you know. count for something?
1: He, <laughs> answered, no, he The way he answered that question, he really does seem to think that there's something in the law that says, look, <laughs> if you have a 1967 Corvette Stingray in the proximity of those documents, they are considered secure under the law. All
0: right, Jim, on to our final martini. This is crazy, and this is the one we mentioned up top that uh, – you have been uh, preparing much of your career for. For those who don't know and haven't been long Three Martini Lunch listeners, Jim burst to prominence during the 2004 uh, presidential campaign with his column at National Review Online called The Kerry Spot. And so he has closely chronicled John Kerry not only during the presidential campaign of that year, but uh, we've talked about him a lot ever since. Uh, The impressions are phenomenal. The the arrogance and out-of-touchness, if that's even a word of John Kerry, uh, off the charts, and yesterday is the chef's kiss of John Kerry elitism. He's, of course, at Davos, uh, the World Economic Forum, so that in and of itself puts him with the people with their noses in the air, but uh, yesterday, he just goes off, fully knowing the cameras are rolling, about he and the select group of people there who are saving our planet. And when you stop and think about it, it's pretty extraordinary that we,
1: select group of human beings because of whatever touched us at some point in our lives are able to sit in a room and come together and uh, actually talk about saving the planet I mean it's so almost extraterrestrial to think about quote saving the planet and if you said that to most people most people they think you're just a crazy tree hugging lefty liberal you know do-gooder whatever and and there's no relationship. But
0: really, that's where we are. You forgot freedom shredding, liberal. But, uh, Jim, what do you make of John Kerry with a comment that I think we could have struggled to imagine, much less actually respond to?
1: Yeah. No, if I had written some sort of scene like this in the weed agency, I think the editors would have said, come on, Jim, that's ridiculous. You know, not even John Kerry would say something like that. So he comes up and says, We're almost extraterrestrial. And some people say in the background, you can see people's eyes kind of widening. Now, you might say people's eyes kind of widening in surprise and maybe discomfort uh, because they think that's kind of such an absurd out of this world um, comparison metaphor, word choice, however what you want to put it. Or perhaps the people at Davos are genuinely concerned that John Kerry came very close to revealing to the world that they are, in fact, lizard people. <laughs> um, and then all the conspiracy theories uh, were, were correct. Look, I mean, maybe, I, I see if he had paused and kind of winked or something like that, you could have said, oh, okay, here he is, you know, um, tweaking the, the or trolling the conspiracy theorists. But you just listen to the audio. I don't think that's that. I think he really does. This just is, you know, the, the word choice that sprung to mind to him. And I think in a way it's a revealing word choice. And as much as you get you know, we can make jokes, oh, oh, John Kerry looks like an alien, or oh, he looks like he's part of the Adams family. You know, so, you know. Um, but I think when you say, oh, we're you know, we're what we're doing here is almost extraterrestrial, um, I think he's actually kind of summarizing how a chunk of the Davos crowd see themselves as different from most people and actually separate from most people. Let's face it. They live a life that is very different from you or me or the vast majority of people on this planet, right? They, you know, fly around in a lot of private jets. Honest to goodness, John Kerry drives, flies around in a private jet telling other people they need to reduce their carbon emissions. And he's been interviewed about this a bunch of times and he keeps insisting that what he does is so important that that makes his carbon emissions okay. He can't grasp any degree of hypocrisy to him. This is like it's silly, it's not silly for him to do this. It's silly for you ask the question. Income level, where they live, how many houses they live, uh, lifestyle. They just live completely differently from the rest of us. And I, I remember, I think, you know, when when um, Al Gore gave his acceptance speech at the 2000 Democratic Convention in Los Angeles, the um, acerbic and very sharp, generally sometimes left of center writer Mickey Kaus looked at this and he, he noticed there was a lot of populism in it, particularly Al Gore's line, I'm for the people, not for the powerful. Of course, this is the son of the senator who went to private schools, grew up in luxury, had the easiest role in Vietnam. You know, the, the idea that, you know, Al Gore is just some ordinary folk standing up against big powerful people was kind of absurd. And Mickey Kouse diagnosed that like the only way Al Gore can relate to the average American is to be his savior, is to be this heroic figure. It's not, oh, yeah, I'm like you. It's like, no, no, I am put in this place to save you. And in the case of Al Gore, and who was speaking at Davos and in much of the Davos crowd, we are here to save you from yourselves. You cannot be counted on to make decisions that are that are good for you, good for the planet, good for everybody else. No, we have to show you the way. It is in this kind of Messiah complex here. Um, and so when you know and, and so the thing about how these we're saving the planet well who are they saving the planet from so I wrote yesterday not not Vladimir Putin not uh, Xi Jinping in China or North Korea or the Iranian mullahs no they're saving the planet from you ignorant American or Western European driving your car wherever you like and eating as many big Macs as you like and keeping your house temperature or anything oh no that's who they have what they're trying to save the planet from not, not from all these terribly, you know, anybody committing genocide. Ah, look, when you commit genocide, you eliminate a lot of people, and that reduces their carbon emissions. I don't know if anybody at Davos actually thinks that way. But when your, economic, when your environmental philosophy sees humanity as the enemy, and that the, nothing less than the planet is at stake, well, then all of a sudden you really get less, much much less worried about that stuff, and you get much more angry at people who are doing ordinary parts of life, but that are emitting a lot more uh, carbon emissions. So again, I could do a lot of jokes about John Kerry looks like an alien, but I think the more significant one is that John Kerry, and I would suspect a decent chunk of the Davos crowd, see their role on this planet as something akin to some visiting alien who is here to save humanity from its own uh, frailty and its own foolishness and its own lack of wisdom. Of course, if you've seen V, they end up eating gerbils and trying to enslave humanity anyway. (laughs)
0: Yes. And like you said, they don't do the things they insist that we do. And so the hypocrisy runs amok. I think we talked yesterday when we were talking about Davos, Jim, about uh, how this is increasingly looking like a collection of Bond villains. I think Klaus Schwab with his accent would be the the most appropriate one to say, no, Mr. Bond, I expect you to die. But uh, (laughs) John Kerry would uh, have the long winded version of Mr. Bond, I do expect, in fact, you to die, and here are 17 reasons why. And so by the time that... Um, his... you're,
1: you're going to bore me to death, I see.
0: <laughs> Your
1: Aston Martin's emissions are simply excessive. You moved to the electric I think in one of the last movie, he did have some environmentally friendly sports car. Yeah. Ah. But I'm sure at some point, you know, Kerry will say, no, we have always believed we had this mission to preserve every last man, woman, and child on Earth. And we do that because of this, our guidebook, our guiding principle, to serve man. Twilight Zone uh, fans will recognize (laughs) that there are two ways to serve man.
0: One's on a plate. So, uh, Jim, (laughs) I don't know if we can top that tomorrow in our crazy martini, but uh, I won't be surprised if it comes close. See you tomorrow. See you tomorrow, Greg. Jim Garrity, National Review. I'm Greg Corumbus of Radio America. Thanks so much for being with us today. Do subscribe to the podcast if you don't already and tell a friend about us as well. Thank you also for your five-star ratings and your kind reviews. Please, please keep those coming. Get us on your home devices. All you have to say is play 3 Martini Lunch podcast. Follow us on Twitter. He's at Jim Garrity. I'm at Dateline underscore DC. Have a terrific Wednesday and join us again on Thursday for the next 3 Martini Lunch.